Perfect. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Megan McCarty Carino. I'm filling in for Kyra's doll. It's Tuesday. That means it's deep dive day. And today's topic is the latest public health emergency, monkeypox. We started to see a few cases pop up in mid-May, and now the CDC has confirmed more than 7,500 in the United States. And I have just had so many questions about this. And then last week, the Biden administration declared that monkeypox was a public health emergency. And so what we want to do today is figure out how we got here. How did this become a crisis? What do we know about the disease and what we don't? And also what it's going to take to combat monkeypox, because we're still in an economy and a world shaped by COVID-19. So, so, so many questions. (laughs) Right. So here to make us smart is Dr. Celine Gounder. She is an epidemiologist and editor-at-large for public health at Kaiser Health News. Hello, Dr. Gounder. It's great to be here. So I guess, first off, you know, just explain what is monkeypox and how did it go from something that was largely thought to be containable to a public health emergency? So monkeypox is a distant relative of smallpox. Uh, It is much less mortal, so less likely to cause Mm -hmm. death than smallpox. But it does cause Mm -hmm. these extremely painful lesions that can be quite disfiguring, can cause scarring. What we saw is around 2016, 2017, a change in the pattern of transmission um, that goes back to Nigeria, where we started to see a lot more cases among men, say, in their 20s and 30s. And as it turns out, likely that was the beginnings of transmission um, among men who have sex with men. And one of the main challenges in Nigeria is that Gay sex is illegal. So if you are uh, a man engaging um, in gay sex and you have, let's say, health issues resulting from that, maybe an STD, you're not going to be as likely to present to your Mm. healthcare provider for help. And a Mm. lot of this is going to end up going under the radar. Well, let's talk about that to start, because there's been so much talk in the United States about the fact that it is predominantly this community that's seeing a lot of the cases, but this is not a disease that is exclusive to that community. And it seems to be a really tough line for public health officials to walk and then also for people to just not be jerks about it. Yeah, it is a really tough one. And there's been this whole debate, is monkeypox an STD? Mm. I've been using the term sexually transmissible, so it can be transmitted sexually, but that's not necessarily the only way it's transmitted. What does seem to be true, though, is sexual transmission appears to be a more efficient, effective means of transmitting it, which is why we're seeing it blow up the way it is right now. How difficult is it to to message what the risks are and to, you know, how targeted that messaging should be given the the transmission dynamics that that we're seeing right now. So if you look at um, other infectious diseases that have been sexually transmissible, like, say, HIV or syphilis, you do see those diseases um, more frequently among men who have sex with men. 
but you don't see them exclusively in those populations. And so there are particular groups that we are worried about seeing spillover as well as uh, monkeypox becoming more entrenched in a long-term way. And so who are those groups? Uh, women of color are the next highest risk group for HIV after men who have sex with men. And this is for a couple of reasons. One um, has to do with sexual networks. And so if you are in a sexual network where there's just more of the disease, your chances probabilistically of coming into contact, being exposed are going to be higher. These are also people who are having more difficulty accessing health care, whether that's testing or treatment or prevention. In fact, NPR just had a poll come out in collaboration with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Harvard that looked at healthcare access among communities of color. And that remains a huge challenge. Um, and then you also have whether gay sex is stigmatized in a mm. particular uh, mm. population. And so the more stigmatized it is, the more likely those men may have other partners because that is what's socially acceptable. And that does create additional risk factors for, for women of color because it is so stigmatized. Gay sex is so stigmatized in that population of, of people of color. Right. This this concept of people living on the down low, men who might have gay sex partners but are also married or in, also have female partners, that they're not disclosing that as well. Um, you know, I remember this research that came out a little while back about COVID-19, that when people heard that it predominantly was killing people in communities of color and lower income people, that in many cases, that made some people less likely to take um, preventative measures. And I wonder if there's a concern here that by talking about the fact that this is predominantly affecting, at least right now, this community, that it's going to decrease people's willingness to be careful. I think that is absolutely the case. And when I think about um, some of the other populations that are at risk, I, I'm not as concerned about monkeypox becoming entrenched in those communities, but I think they are at risk. So take college students. Those are dense sexual networks, social sexual networks, mm -hmm. um, just like you see with gay men. You see college students having multiple partners, some of them at the same, you know, around the same time. And that is really the behavior that puts you at risk for monkeypox. And so you only need the introduction into a college campus, a few cases for that to start to spread uh, if you're not on top of it. And so I think it's really important uh, that we be educating colleges, universities, the students, the staff about the risk so that they can contain it, they can prevent that kind of spread from happening. All right. Now the government has declared a public health emergency here. I mean, what exactly does that do? What kind of resources does that open up? What kind, you know, how is this, how is this address the problem? Well, it certainly creates more flexibility in terms of how public health funding is spent, how it can be, uh, reallocated, um, taken out of silos and reapplied to this. So for example, if there's funding, you know, for COVID that hasn't been spent, can you reallocate that for monkeypox? But it also has other implications. So for example, the FDA, um, the COVID vaccines 
uh, initially were under these emergency use authorizations and then eventually fully approved. But the EUA, that emergency use authorization, was a function of the public health emergency Mm -hmm. that made that possible. So I think you're going to see very shortly similar kinds of authorizations coming through, whether it's for vaccines or tests for monkeypox. Are we equipped? I mean, is our public health system equipped to handle two outbreaks, two significant outbreaks? Obviously, COVID is much more um, widespread than monkeypox, but are we ready for it? <laughs> uh, sadly, oh, no. That was and that was not the answer <laughs> we were looking for. No. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh. we're coming out of, we're emerging from the pandemic weaker than ever. And my colleagues at Kaiser Health News wow. in this series called Underfunded, uh, Under Under Threat, um, have looked at what's happened to public health departments under uh, throughout the pandemic. And they have lost a lot of staff, right. people who were fired, who quit, who retired and were not replaced. And so you've lost a lot of institutional memory, expertise, just plain boots on the ground. And so you have that problem. People are also just burned Mm. out. Morale is really low. And all of those weaknesses that were there before the pandemic, whether it's, you know, having to fax your data, um, having laboratory systems that are still not able to scale up the way you might want them as quickly to do so, none of that has really been fixed. Mm. And so those same weaknesses are still there. So there are a lot of weaknesses in the public health system. Are there lessons learned from COVID that are being applied that you see? Are there, you know, things that have continued to to be neglected? And are there lessons that maybe were mislearned from COVID that you see playing out? You know, it's funny. I, I'm getting this question a lot. Have we learned the lessons of COVID? What were the lessons from COVID? Are we going to do better? I think the question is, who has learned the questions from COVID? Who needed to learn them? Hmm. And honestly, public health officials, they knew what the problems were even before COVID. Right. They knew what the weaknesses of the system were. Clinicians also had a pretty good awareness. But who are the people that can actually change those problems? A lot of it comes down to funding. And funding is allocated by Congress, by legislators. They're the ones that have the power of the purse. You have regulatory powers, public health powers. Public health departments don't claim those powers or or set the rules. Someone else uh, delegates those powers to them. And again, that's generally elected officials. And then you have the public. Is the public calling up those elected officials saying, you know what, public health is important to me? Are they calling up those those elected officials in the same way that they might say inflation is out of control or schools are closed. This is a major problem for my, my, my kids. They're not. And as long as you have elected officials, legislators who have themselves not learned the lessons of COVID and in terms of building up public health. And as long as you have a public that is not clamoring for building up public health, I don't think the lessons have been learned, and I don't think you're going to see true improvement. So then, as far as brass tacks, like what what now for people? Like what what can we do? Like I was in um, the store the other day trying on a dress, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like 
if monkeypox is transmissible on surfaces, is is this like a way that I could, you know, potentially get monkeypox trying on clothes that other people have tried on? And I remember early in COVID, like when we didn't know how it spread, everyone was like washing their mail. And I don't feel like, while I don't want the panic of that moment, um, I just still really don't know. What are people supposed to do at this point to help contain it? So I I wouldn't worry too much about trying on clothes at the clothing store. Um, In general, if you have skin lesions, most people probably wouldn't go clothing shopping and having their blisters leaking out on clothing. Um, And in particular, the lesions that are really infectious, that are really um, spreading the disease right now are these uh, lesions in more uh, intimate areas, Mm -hmm. so the genitalia, the anus. And that would mean you're trying underwear or bathing suits without something on underneath. That's not really how uh, stores let you try on clothing. And you're only trying these things on for a very brief period of time. I think we're more concerned about the towel you might use on those intimate parts of the body and something that you're using daily or your bed sheets that you're spending the night in or clothing that you've worn all day. Something you've just worn briefly is, is much lower risk. Let's talk about vaccines. There's been, you know, a lot of talk about ring vaccination, whether vaccines are available enough. Um, Obviously, this is a different situation than COVID. We have existing vaccines uh, that, that, that can prevent the smallpox vaccines. But where are we with the supply, with the availability, with access to them? So there are multiple vaccines that are effective in preventing monkeypox. The one we're most focused on right now is the Geneos vaccine, and that's because it has the best safety profile, including among people who are immunocompromised, people who have skin conditions like atopic dermatitis or eczema. And so that's the one that is currently being given um, to high-risk persons, but we don't have enough. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of debate right now about how can we stretch the supply? Right. Can we administer it in different ways that would be um, allow you to use a smaller dose? Can we stretch out the interval between the first and second dose and so on? That's all under discussion. Um, you mentioned uh, ring vaccination. So that's something that dates back to the smallpox days. Mm-hmm. The ma- there's a big difference here, though, is that Smallpox, basically everybody who had smallpox, you could see it. They had the lesions. Everybody Mm. was symptomatic. With monkeypox, it looks like some people may not be symptomatic. And there are definitely cases going under the radar. So if you're not able to identify every case and vaccinate around it, you're not able to do that ring vaccination. Is it... I guess I'm wondering, is this the new normal where we're sort of dealing with more than one national health crisis so close together, overlapping? Are we just going to be in the era of pandemics and always sort of playing whack-a-mole with one disease or, or another moving forward? Well, we see a very clear trend over the last century that as you've seen global warming, climate change, you see the rate at which infectious diseases emerge to be speeding up. You see more and more infectious Mm. diseases emerge. And so just over the last few years, we've had HIV, you have uh, 
SARS, you have MERS, you have chikungunya, you have Zika, you have Ebola, you have, you know, the number of infectious diseases where you've had outbreaks um, has been increasing. And why is that? Well, I mentioned climate change, but you also have other factors. So some of this is globalization. It's just easier to get from one part of the world to another. You have uh, trends like deforestation and people encroaching more on uh, wild habitats, animal habitats. Um, and so these kinds of forces are leading to more and more infectious diseases emerging. And so, yes, I, I do think that's going to be more and more the new normal. Okay, not a normal I love, but mm. I guess this is where we are. Uh, Dr. Celine Gounder, thank you so much. She's with pub, um, excuse me, a infectious disease epidemiologist and editor at large for public health at Kaiser Health News. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay, well, I feel better about the trying on clothes and stores things because right. that was definitely like a little panic moment for me. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I get so concerned the way that I hear yeah. this narrative developing. Right. Like I get that it's concentrated in the community of men having sex with men at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I just I'm, I'm so concerned that that's going to make people dismissive yeah. of it, you know, on a larger scale. And I just like I want folks to do better. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a really tough call because I also think the, you know, the opposite of that, of sort of raising the alarm to a level that that can also make people tune out, you know, when they feel like, well, this is, you know, alarmist and doomer, scaremongering and that kind of thing, I think can also make people tune out. And I think a, a big kind of issue that public health has been grappling with over the last you know, several years is how to message to the public in a way that, you know, gets information to the people who need it. That is, you know, that is fact based um, and maybe doesn't necessarily try to anticipate all of the different ways that people could interpret or I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of kind of trying to anticipate, you know, if we say that you you know, need a mask. Will that cause a run on masks that, you know, just trying to sort of try to anticipate psychologically how facts are going to uh, affect the, the public's interpretation of risks and what they will do um, when maybe just putting all the facts out there is 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 kind of what we need at this point. But it is it's a really it's a really delicate and complex situation. Um, and I certainly do not uh, do not envy those that are that are in that position of, of trying to message this. Yeah, of trying to get out information without underselling it and also not right. being alarmist. Um, well, let us know what you think. Do you have other questions about monkeypox? I'm sure we can probably um, go back and ask Dr. Gounder later on. But um, tell us. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Or you can send us a voice memo at makemesmart at marketplace.org. And we will be right back. Okay, it is time for the news fix. Megan, why don't you go first? Okay, so uh, this morning, the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
uh, put out the quarterly productivity numbers. And, you know, I cover workplace culture here at Marketplace. I feel like I talk a lot about productivity in sort of the more business, you know, sort of the more like individual worker oriented way of like, oh, you know, are you more productive when you're working from home or not? That's not what we're talking about here. (laughs) We're sort of talking about how much the economy produced per hour worked and that figure fell 4.6% last quarter after it fell the quarter before 7.4% and those two quarters combined marked the weakest back-to-back productivity readings in the data uh, since that data has been collected back to 1947 which is a little bit concerning Um, Of course, you know, I think a lot of people think productivity like, oh, that's just to enrich the bosses or something. I mean, at a a very macro level, this matters because productivity and sort of how much it costs to produce a thing, you know, the unit labor Mm -hmm. cost, that has a very big effect on inflation. And inflation is having a very big effect on everyone right now and will have a very big effect on interest rates and the future of the economy. Yeah. That might need a little bit more explanation in terms of productivity having that tie into inflation. So if productivity is lower, meaning it takes more time to produce a widget, (laughs) you know, somebody is paying staff more money for those hours worked to produce the same right. number of widgets. Yeah. And that increases scarcity because it takes longer to produce said widgets mm-hmm. and therefore pushing up the prices. And so that decline in productivity that feeds into an inflation in that way. And I'm and I'm curious about these numbers because for years and years everyone's been like saying, right. oh, you know, mechanization is going to just keep us on the upward trajectory of yep. Up mechanization and automation are going to keep Computers, us on this upward yeah. trajectory of productivity. And I'll be really interested to hear how economists unpack this decline. Is it because, right. you know, we lost a chunk of the labor force mm-hmm. to the pandemic yep. and a lot of people still can't go back to work because they're dealing with long COVID or lack of child care or, or some other thing related to the pandemic and or are people just burning out and therefore their productivity is dropping like this is this is all really interesting yeah sort of on a on longer time scales this has been a bit of a a mystery that productivity you know before the pandemic productivity gains were not as strong as economists had predicted they would be with all of the advances in technology that we have you know happening so quickly advances in you know artificial intelligence and computing which generally was thought that's going to accelerate productivity gains, but they had not really been, you know, materializing in the way that had been suspected early in the pandemic. We had this kind of jump in productivity because so many people got sucked out of the labor force. Businesses were having to, you know, do more with less. And so that meant productivity sort of sort of artificially went up. And then so part of this may be a little bit of a rebalancing happening, but it's definitely you know, it's definitely concern. I'm sure it will be concerning the Fed as they continue to try to manage uh, inflation with raising interest rates in ways that 
could then bring on a recession. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, because it's it's when when labor costs are going up and, and productivity is going up in tandem with it, then businesses don't have to raise prices in order to cover those increases in labor costs. So what you always want to see is when labor costs are going up, productivity also going up. But this this definitely puts more pressure on the economy, puts more pressure on, you know, the Fed to tighten monetary policy even more. So that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do mine pretty quickly because I want to get to the mail bag. But uh, today, President Biden signed the um, bipartisan. I want to say that because it actually exists sometimes. uh, The Chips and Science Act, which is this big bill that's trying to improve U.S. competitiveness against China by moving more chip production domestically. And in line with this announcement, several chip makers announced that they are going to be investing here in the U.S. Um, the, The White House said, and I'm reading from CNBC's coverage of this now, the White House said that multiple companies have announced more than $44 billion in new semiconductor manufacturing investments. This is another one of those, uh, you know, wins for the White House and the Democrats at this point after a long streak of not a lot getting done. But this has the potential to create a ton of jobs, ease some of those supply chain woes that we have. But it's going to take a while for these computer Mm -hmm. chips to be coming out of American factory and for this production to get online. But it does mark a pretty significant shift uh, in in how these supply chains are going to work and There's a lot of optimism throughout industry and uh, on both sides of the aisle on this one. Yeah, this has been kind of a novel week of of doing uh, legislative wins, getting stuff (laughs) done in Washington. Uh, All right. That is, uh, I guess, I guess that's it for the news fix. So let's move on to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, first we have a voice memo from a listener who's making some big decisions in the wake of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Rebecca from Austin. My husband and I are tech workers. We met in New York City but then moved to the suburbs of Austin after our daughter was born, because that's where I grew up. But after Texas passed its restrictive abortion law, I no longer feel safe living here. So we're moving to Seattle. Um, We are so blessed that we have jobs where we can work anywhere, but I am so sad to leave behind this beautiful life that we've been building for our family. I'm so sad that I can no longer be proud to be from Texas. Wow. That, that's really rough. It reminds me of some of the coverage that Amy Scott did about the families that felt like they had to leave Texas because of some of the anti-trans legislation. And... You know, we've talked for years about the pending climate migration Mm. because of climate change. But now we're facing this migration because of politics. Mm. And I imagine a lot of people are 
you know, wrestling with decisions like that. And it's yeah. not easy. Um, kids, you know, determining where they're going to go to college, totally. people deciding where they're going to make their lives and raise their kids. All of it, it matters. Indiana just passed its um, anti-abortion law and several of the big companies there said that they're not going to be doing any further expansion right. in the state. Yeah, I saw Eli Lilly. I think right. it was Eli Lilly, yeah. yeah. They said that any future expansion was going to have to be outside of the state. There are economic um, yeah. consequences to it as well as clearly as we heard emotional ones. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, over the last several years, it's I've been reporting on kind of the migration to many of these states, Texas being one of the biggest ones in terms of, you know, high-skilled workers, workers, remote workers moving to more affordable places like Texas, like many states in the, you know, kind of sunbelt. Um, and these are many of the states that have have taken, you know, hard right turns in terms of these kinds of policies. And now to sort of to, to hear from folks like uh, Kimberly and, you know, that these kinds of decisions have, yeah, they're, they're really, you know, it's not just about work and cost of living, that there are other things that are coming to bear here that have a really big effect for people. That'll be an interesting story to follow on, yeah. um, you know, for us to do, I guess, because we're the ones covering it. Yep. But, um, you know, we had so many people migrating into those Sunbelt states, as you said, for lower cost of living, you get a bigger house for less money. And a lot of people coming from the more liberal or yep. coastal cities and communities for the cheap land and the space and, and the schools and whatever. And now those same people with their, you yep. know, air quote, liberal values are probably deciding to pack up and go. If yeah, they huge can. economic but again, story. As Kimberly said, it's yeah. a privilege. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we talked recently about the helium shortage, and Leslie in South Carolina sent us this. Hi, Make Me Smart team. A while back, my family stopped using mylar and latex balloons, which are for all practical purposes not recyclable, and they hang around in landfills for years, if not forever. And we switched to reusable Japanese paper balls and paper lanterns. Mm. We suspend the lanterns for that really cool big floating balloon effect and use painted dowels to hold up the smaller paper balls. And when the party's over, everything folds flat and goes into a box until the next birthday or graduation or whatever. <laughs> so it seems like a win-win-win. Low waste, less inflation spending for Kai, and the helium <laughs> can go where it's actually needed. I gotta see a photo. I of love this. it. Actually, I have some of those lanterns that I um the the round paper yeah. balls that I put up for um, my cherry blossom party every oh, year. Oh, lovely! And yeah, they, they fold down and they go in the storage unit, and then I pop them back out every year. And I and I have some stars like that that I put up around uh, Christmas. Right, yeah, I got some from uh, from IKEA. The little cardboard floating stars. I put those up for Christmas. Yeah, it is a great idea, and I mean, I just love that it's reusable. So. Just for sure. Bring it in, bring it out for every holiday. All right. Before we go, we are going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew, but later found out you were wrong about? This is Chloe calling in from London, England. 
the thing that I thought I knew that I later found out that I was wrong about was when you had to buy your airline tickets for your vacation. Um, my family always booked their airline tickets as soon as they went on sale, so about a year in advance. And I just assumed that if you didn't buy your tickets immediately, you would not be able to get tickets at all to go anywhere. They would sell out. Um, but as I got older and I moved overseas and I started booking my own vacations, it turns out that I could book a an airline ticket to go anywhere tomorrow. <laughs> and it might be a little bit more expensive, but it also might be cheaper. Uh, so it's something that has definitely changed how I book my holidays and how soon in advance I plan them. Either way, I want to say hi to both my parents who are in Wisconsin, and I told my mom to call in, but we will see if she actually does. Thanks. Bye. All right. If you're Chloe's mom, or even if you're not. Well, I don't know if that actually counts as being wrong about, because right. like it could be that when Chloe was younger, there were fewer airline routes, and they would sell out, and True. fewer air, like. You know, there may not have been as I much. I feel like so, the wisdom like, of when to buy your airline ticket is constantly changing and always incorrect. Yeah, absolutely. So, I don't know. Remember there was like, oh, you should always get it on a Tuesday or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard <laughs> I that. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like it's never right. Uh, well, <laughs> Chloe's mom, please do give us a call uh, or anyone else. You can send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question via voice memo to our email at makemesmart at marketplace.org or you can leave us an actual phone message at 508-827-6278 also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our intern is Olivia Zhao. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe with mixing by Becca Weinman. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our lovely theme music. The senior producer is Bridget Bodnar. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. And Francesca Levy, welcome, is the executive director of Digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. I just want to get more decorations. I want to get plane tickets. That's what I want. (laughs) We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.